Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius, and I'm the host of Confronting the Madness. Before I start, I must say, this was one of the shittiest episodes I've ever done, and I'll tell you more why later. I did, however, have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Valerie Taylor, Originally hailing from Newfoundland, Valerie is now the Calgary Zone Lead for Addiction and Mental Health with Alberta Health Services, as well as the Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Calgary. Valerie's research focuses on working to identify new treatment modalities for those suffering from mental illness. And after speaking with her, I was very impressed at the University of Calgary and specifically the Department of Psychiatry how they are pushing boundaries to try to identify new treatment modalities for individuals that have been suffering for too long. In 2020, Valerie was named one of Canada's 100 most powerful women. And let me tell you, she is a powerful woman. She has a keen interest in the area of the brain-body interface, and a major focus of her research surrounds the gut-brain axis, and investigating how manipulation of this system can be used as a potential therapeutic target for new treatments and how psychiatric illness impacts the gut microbiome. I didn't know this, but there's actually more serotonin in your gut than there is in your brain. So that's something to seriously consider. And now this is why I said... This is the shittiest episode I've ever been a part of. Trigger warning. Valerie is currently running the only clinical trial in North America using what's called fecal transplant to target mood disorders. I'm going to say that again. Fecal transplant to target mood disorders. So in essence, and she'll do a better job of explaining this than I will, but I'd like to take a stab at it. What they're doing is taking the feces from a healthy human being and through a reverse colonoscopy, they are injecting that feces in individuals with a mental illness. And for the purposes of this research study, it is individuals with bipolar disorder. So a reverse colonoscopy. So it's shit getting pumped back into your gut And the hypothesis is this is going to help you with your well-being. Tough argument, perhaps. However, when you listen to this podcast, Valerie will make you a convert. And for those people out there who don't think mental illness is a real thing, consider the fact that most people don't even want to get a colonoscopy. And people lined up, lined up to be part of this study, to get a reverse colonoscopy where someone else's shit was shoved up their body in an effort to try to feel better. I don't think you're doing that unless you're struggling in a very significant way. So fuck you to all those people.
Another thing Valerie just announced was the Parker Psychedelic Research Chair, the first of its kind in Canada. And thanks to, and in and, and, and large part thanks to, a $3 million gift from an alumnus, Jim Parker, who will be joining me on the podcast in a few weeks' time where we can delve into this research chair deeper. A couple words about Valerie. I found her to be authentic, genuine, passionate, in it for the right reasons, wanting to move the needle in this area. And I love everything she's doing at the University of Calgary. I think you'll really enjoy this episode, despite the... um, the nature of the content, but as the title suggests, Valerie has redefined what it means to have shit for brains. And now I bring to you Dr. Valerie Taylor. record and we could edit the arrest out but um dr valerie taylor it is a pleasure to have you on confronting the madness uh how are you doing today you know what all things considered i'm doing okay it's friday it's friday yeah it's been a weird weird time for the health system uh, with the fourth wave of the pandemic um and in your role obviously has a significant part to play in um well, a lot of things. You're the the lead for the HS Calgary Zone, um, Alberta Health Services Calgary Zone for psychiatry, and you're also the department head for the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Calgary. So um, you must have been you must be busy and have been busy for the past uh, couple years, I guess. Uh, and maybe just talk a little bit about um, your role and how the I guess the demand for mental health services and how it's ebbed and flowed through the pandemic. Because I, you know, my understanding in Edmonton was that in March, 2020, when the pandemic first hit our shores, hit our wheat fields, um, everybody was scared to go into the hospital. So demand dropped. I'm not sure if that was the same in Calgary, but, um, and then there was a spike and it's, it's kind of been like a roller coaster perhaps, but, Maybe you could just speak to your experience during the pandemic in your role and what that's been like. No, I, I think that that's exactly um, that reflects the Calgary experience, and I think pretty much across Canada. I think initially, you know, people were really scared about going into hospitals, and the messaging was like, "If you don't need to come, don't come." And so people often, you know, they tried to adhere to that. They tried to stay home. At the same time, you know, family doctors were working differently. And so sometimes it was challenging to get in to see a family doctor. And then we saw, which many people had predicted, sort of a a mental health wave that kind of 
latched on to the, the COVID wave. They just kind of separated by a few months where I think a lot of people who should have been coming into hospital deteriorated at home and suddenly we saw them a lot sicker. We had people mm -hmm. who were kind of maybe doing okay previously, but just the financial stress, the worry, all the other pieces of COVID just kind of tipped them over and they weren't able to kind of cope the way they had. Um, substance use went through the roof. Um, child psychiatry went through the roof because, you know, unfortunately, um, being locked at home with your families is not the best environment for every kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a increase in domestic abuse. There was an increase in, uh, you know, family violence. Uh, we saw an increase in eating disorders, which is an illness that you know, is all about control. And sometimes the more chaotic mm -hmm. the world gets, the more control these kids need to show over something. And so eating disorders skyrocketed to rates that were had never been seen before across Canada. And so, you know, all of that, and it's, it really, it has not stopped. And you know, mm -hmm. we've been um, operating kind of over capacity pretty much for the last eight to 12 months. Yeah. And maybe talk a little bit about, you know, we hear all the time and rightfully so about capacity within um, hospitals r related to COVID and, and the ICU units as well. But, you know, the, you, you mentioned capacity briefly. How, how are wait times, uh, mental health professionals, uh, morale, and the future of access to care looking like now that we're heading into the fourth wave? And, and what can we do? to help alleviate some of those uh, assumed issues that are in the sec in the, in the, in the mental health care s sector right now. Get a vaccine and be nice to one another would be a good start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, the basic human decency. I mean, I think, you know, I, you don't ever want to say that there's a bright side to the pandemic because there never was, but certainly it's pushed some innovations forward yeah. faster. And certainly the, uh, use of virtual care has been um, really, I think, taken up quite rapidly. And I, I think that that's great. That's great for, especially for psychiatry in terms of, you know, being able to provide care to people who can't necessarily make it into hospital. And, you know, yeah. hopefully uh, kind of in the after times that we can continue some of that, especially to our rural sites in a way that we hadn't before, which is going to make mental health care um, more accessible. I think that we're starting to learn more and more, however, that that's kind of good for some presentations. It doesn't work very well, or it's not as effective for others. And certainly complicated presentations, people need to be seen in person. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm hoping we're going to land on a hybrid. I mean, right now, yeah. everybody's scrambling at the priority within the hospitals. Clearly, our patients coming in who are extraordinarily sick with COVID and uh, as it should be. And so I think we're all trying to make space uh, for that. Um, and that being said, there's a steady stream for sure coming through for mental health and 
the system is trying to absorb that as best we can and not have patients languishing in emergency departments uh, and mm-hmm. moving from emergency up into the the beds. I think the other piece is the use of natural resources, which this is kind of COVID has, I think, pushed forward and, you know, uh, programs in the community, uh, mm-hmm. coping strategies within the community. Um, those times, those types of supports, we're starting to understand more and more about how important they are and hopefully work with our community partners to augment some of that stuff so that we can provide care in different ways. You know, all of those things I, I think are good, but I, I think it also, you know, it highlights that we don't have a lot of capacity. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're talking a lot about surge protocols right now with COVID patients and uh, mm-hmm. we're not, uh, we don't have a lot of capacity to absorb surges in any particular area long term. And so my worry is that, you know, much like with the initial waves that once the COVID physical cases die down, that we're going to see this uh, tsunami of mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and so hopefully that we can mobilize the same way and it's given the same sort of priority. Mm-hmm. And maybe talk about that a little bit too, because mental health has been historically underfunded within the healthcare system. Uh, billions of dollars of resources across the country, trillion dollars across the world have been allocated uh, rightfully so to the, the pandemic um, if and when the pandemic ever gets to an endemic stage where it becomes less and less of a public issue, do, do you feel like there's going to be the public appetite for increasing expenditures to support what you call a tsunami? Or is it going to be another case of a uh, fatigue from everyone talking about healthcare crises and, and be thinking this is not as drastic as what COVID was. Well, I mean, I think the way to uh, prevent that from happening is with advocacy, advocacy from the community, advocacy from, you know, those in positions of influence within the community and then advocacy from the healthcare environment. I mean, I, I think, a lot of my colleagues are starting to understand, you know, they're starting to experience their own symptoms uh, of mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, burnout, anxiety. And I think they're starting to recognize that uh, the importance of mental health. And certainly, uh, you know, I, I feel like people within the system, they, you know, I think we've come a long way than we were mm-hmm. uh, 20 years ago where kind of there was, there was so much stigma and you didn't want to talk about the fact that you had a mental illness. And we now have leaders who kind of get up and sort of say, you know what, I, I'm a surgeon and I have depression or I'm a radiologist and, you know, I struggle with anxiety. I'm a healthcare leader and, you know, this is what's going on or it's going on within my family. So I'm hoping that we continue to see the continued support and an acknowledgement of the need to, mm-hmm you know, not just kind of say, okay, we're done and understand that there are going to be ripple effects. And, uh, and 
only time will tell, but you know, I'm uh, patholog- pathologically optimistic. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just pathological. So, so, and I agree with you. I mean, if you look at all the um, federal political parties platforms, mental health is a significant piece of each of theirs. And uh, you're smiling, so I'd like to know what that's, that's about. My large and- dog giving me her toy. To play oh. with. Oh, oh! I thought it—I thought it was a cynical smile. No, no, <laughs> it's a kind of mental health break. COVID puppy. Oh, there we go. Okay, um, what kind of dog you got? Newfoundland. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we can talk about your your upbringing in Newfoundland as well, if you'd like. Um, but maybe maybe just take it a step back. Um, I, I wanted to note and and, and provide you kudos uh, for your somewhat recent recognition as. Being one of the top 100, you're recognized as one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. And that award is given um, by what's called, selected by the WXN Diversity Council of Canada, uh, made up of private, public, and not-for-profit sector leaders. And so, first of all, congratulations. Um, Secondly, I'm honored that one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women would join me um, on such a, how do you say, awkward podcast. But um, you must have been, you must have been thrilled to get that recognition. No, I I was, I mean, it's a great organization, um, the Women's Executive Network and they do fabulous work and just being able to network with them has been great. You know, it was a, uh, of course, normally it's associated with uh, kind of a fancy trip to Ontario and a, and a celebration over the course of you know three days. And uh, I, I got a uh, Ubered plate of uh, <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, of I think cheese sandwiches because we weren't going to travel and all of that stuff. But so I I, oh. I, I actually thought that that was much more appropriate and I actually kind of very on brand for me. So I really liked it. No, I was, oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's been great. And, and I think and like many things, it's sort of the networking and getting to connect with other people. That's really part of what makes those types of awards so great. Yeah. And it's also nice to see um, a psychiatrist and a mental health professional be on that list as well. I think it speaks to, again, the stature that mental health care is, uh, yeah. gaining within the society and so um yeah kudos to you on that and Thank if you. it were me though and if i were one of the top 100 most powerful women in the world i would have a t-shirt and i would just wear that all the time just to just to uh, placate my ego but also i would say to the group listen okay i deserve a three-day trip all expenses paid at a five-star hotel in toronto once it's appropriate and so you owe me, you, I need an IOU slip, okay? Because I'm the top 100 most powerful women in the, in the world. So anyways, I'll, I'll, I digress. I'll, I'll try and I'll use your endorsement. We'll see where that gets me. You use, <laughs> use, oh, yes. If, if you say um, the host of Confronting the Madness said so, um, I'm sure that will move mountains. I did, I did just want to say um, you and I are connected through a mutual friend, Laureen McNeil, and, you know, my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. My friends don't listen to this podcast. Laureen McNeil, 
listens to this podcast. And I know that because I spoke with her last week and she quoted a line in episode 16 that was like 40 minutes deep. And so, you know, that's when, you know, she's also a, she's also a hardcore fan of confronting the madness. So shout out to Lorraine. Cause I know she's going to be listening shout out and she's to also, Lorraine. yes. And she's also in my books, one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women as well. So what got you into psychiatry in the first place? I was watching one of your YouTube talks um, and you had taken an abnormal psychology course, I think just as a filler, but you didn't go into greater detail just because of, of time and getting into the, the work research you're doing. But talk a little bit more about what propelled you into this field and if you have a background from a, a family perspective, a lot of psychiatrists I talk to, you know, their parents were physicians or psychiatrists. And so it's kind of a rite of passage for them to get into the, into the field. But what was your journey like? So uh, I'm originally from Newfoundland again, everybody in Newfoundland ends up in Alberta at some point. Um, <laughs> it is sort of like a rite of passage. So I'm from Newfoundland and uh, I grew up in a small fishing village of 80 people and I went to a one room schoolhouse. And uh, so no, no, no uh, physician background, no, none of that background. And uh, literally, uh, you know, I had to, I had to find some books and kind of teach myself in order to be able to write entrance scholarships for university because I didn't have any science courses um, at my school that were required to write the entrance scholarships. And so it was a bit of a different uh, background, but, but, you know, reading was encouraged and, you know, it's a, and, uh, and, and certainly, and no, no one felt it was uh, deprived or underprivileged in any way, for sure. Mm. And uh, went to university in Memorial, at Memorial University, and kind of trying, like many people, trying to figure out what what you want to do with your life. And I was always somebody, and still am a little bit, who's pretty organized and kind of time management, and I got, you know, things to do and places to be. And so I was the person who kind of, as soon as the class was over, I was out of there because I had somewhere else to be. There was no kind of hanging around and loitering. I was a busy person. And then mm-hmm. in trying to put together an academic schedule. And I guess my first year, I did all arts courses because we didn't have any I, uh, any science um Mm. or a lot of science in the school that I had come from but kind of see these people going into labs and stuff and it kind of seemed interesting to me and so I had asked my academic advisor and uh that we were everybody's given at the university and that person told me that given that I was female and from a non-academic small town background that I should be grateful that I was able to kind of hold my own in university mm. and really not push it mm. by trying to do something as, as strenuous as a, an actual science course. And, you know, that was literally like waving a red flag. And so I'll show you, you little. <laughs> and so transferred over to science to give it a try and absolutely loved the science aspect of things and found a, I had a, an aptitude for it. But then ended up, because I had such a busy schedule, doing an abnormal psychology course on a Wednesday evening because it was the only thing I could fit into my schedule. And I became one of those people that I literally 
would get irritated with in class. The class would be over and I'd be sitting there in this lecture hall of 300 people and the poor teacher would be trying to leave and I kept waving my hand and going, <laughs> yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And why did they do this? And why did they do mm-hmm. that? And I just thought that, kind of, you know, what makes us do what we do as humans mm-hmm. is the most interesting thing there is to to know about. And that, you know, and I've been extraordinarily fortunate that I've you know been able to continue to kind of be that kid who keeps raising her hand and asking questions, and I get to work with you know, people around why they do what they do and to kind of help them understand it sometimes. And I think that, you know, there's there's nothing more privileged than getting to know somebody on that level and to kind of work with them regarding, you know, whatever it is that they're, they're dealing with. And so, you know, I went to medical school to do psychiatry, never wanted to do anything else, never changed my mind once. And, you know, again, got very lucky, got to to do that. I trained at McMaster University um, to do my residency. And while I was there, really started to miss the science piece a little bit and Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. had, you know, more questions than there were answers to. And so got back into the research piece and did a PhD uh, at McMaster in neuroscience to try to help answer some of the questions that I had, um, became very interested in kind of the mind-body connection and sort of how, you know, a lot of the side effects of medications, you know, why do psychiatric drugs all cause diabetes and cardiovascular disease? And, you know, and it was more about trying to make people care about that. And certainly, mm-hmm. and because at the time, there was less you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of interest in the fact that, you know, if you could treat the mental illness, but give somebody three other chronic diseases in the person. <laughs> and people were much less appalled at that than I felt they should be. It's like, this, this is actually right. very bad. And so mm-hmm. trying, trying to understand, because, you know, the, the one of the great things, uh, uh, I think it's a great, it's kind of the best and worst thing about psychiatry is we don't, still there's so much we don't know and especially with respect to the medications you know i treat clinically um, bipolar disorder and we Mm -hmm. we use lithium lithium's a salt why (laughs) in the world does lithium work you know it's been around for hundreds of years um and you know we have some idea but at the end of the day we're still not completely sure and so, you know, just trying to understand if we can figure out why the drugs work, that'll give us a bit more of an understanding of, you know, perhaps prevention as opposed to treatment. And mm-hmm. so just, you know, that whole area fascinated me. And then I happened to serendipitously, I guess, have two patients, both of whom had been sick for a very long time and both of whom got put on antibiotics, one for pneumonia and one because they'd had a minor surgical procedure and needed to be on antibiotics. And both of them miraculously became well within a week or so of being on their antibiotics. And, you know, and these are people who had been kind of failed every treatment. They had been very sick for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Nothing seemed to work for them. And they literally became different people. And they kind of came to me and they were sort of like, you know, what's that about? Is it the antibiotics? And I'm like, I, I actually have no idea, but you know, let's figure it out. And of course, both of them, once the antibiotics stopped, beca- uh, within two weeks became sick again. And one of them, we actually retried uh, antibiotic exposure to see 
Mm -hmm. get the same thing to happen the second time and we couldn't. And so Mm. what was going on? And so fortunately at McMaster at that time, there was a big program. One of the, it was pretty new at that time, looking at links between your gut microbiome and the bacteria that are in your GI system and how Mm -hmm. that's related to, we know it's related to things like Clostridium difficile infection and all of those things, but they were starting to look at it with respect to the role it played in other areas. And so I started to work with that group to kind of figure out if there was something here with respect to the connection to mental illness. And, you know, it played well with my interest in just physical health and and mental Mm -hmm. health. I subsequently went to Toronto, uh, got recruited into Toronto and working there um, with a, a group we created the first fecal transplant program for non-GI illnesses at that time in the world. And so the focus was fecal transplant for things other than Clostridium difficile infections. And so, uh, and I subsequently went on to get the first grant, I think funded through that program, uh, which is a study that will be finishing in two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so really, really excited. And it's fecal transplant for bipolar disorder. And so, um, can, can I just yeah. can I just pause you there because this is just, gotta come up. Um, I know I, I love to talk about this. No, I and I I um I started going down the rabbit hole last night. I had heard about this a few years ago, and it's a you know for for, for lay people out there, it's a <clears throat> I'll call it a unique. I was going to say bizarre. Um, use any any number of both um, work. I get it. <laughs> Both work. That said, um, extremely interesting. And so, you know, maybe I wanted you to talk about the gut, the gut brain access before we dive into your your bipolar research around this area. Just explain the gut brain access and why it is that within our gut, there are certain chemicals that interact with the brain to either help or hinder our mental well-being if i said that in the right way no no absolutely i mean um there's a lot of science that links your brain your gut and your brain and it's funny when we started doing our clinical trials a lot of physicians were were skeptical and more skeptical not necessarily about the science but the fact that, you know, somebody with a mental illness who was depressed was going to sign up to be involved in taking fecal transplant because it just seemed a little unusual. But we've never had trouble recruiting because I think for individuals with mental illness, this makes sense. Like they, they many people feel that there's a connection between mm-hmm. the GI system and Absolutely. the brain. And that yes. when one goes, the other goes and that they're intimately um connected and for many of them it was sort of like oh god thank goodness somebody actually takes this seriously and understands that the two things are linked because i've been telling this to people forever and and uh, and nobody's actually kind of believes me when i say this and so you know i think patients know it but from a scientific perspective certainly there's been a whole well we can even go back in history and and i think uh, this is actually not new science i think understanding it to the level we understand it now is certainly new, but in the 1800s, um, you know, uh, early on, kind of 1920s, 
this was actually a common treatment, uh, manipulating your GI system in order to improve how you felt. And people would go to these mm -hmm. different, um, they call them sanatoriums. And, you know, when they would experience, uh, you know, what they would call burnout or stress or melancholia, which was kind of that term for just depression or overall feeling rotten. And they would go there and they would kind of take a break from society and they would eat a very bland diet. And that was a treatment. And the thought was that if you ate a very bland diet, it would remove the toxins from your body. And they, this toxin removal would kind of improve your ability to cope. It would lower your stress. It would decrease your worry. And so basically, it was kind of changing up your gut microbiome by changing up your diet was going to impact how you felt. And then people moved to kind of they would give people lactic acid containing foods in order to improve their mental health, which is essentially probiotics. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so understanding that that seemed to have an impact on mental health. And they called this kind of auto intoxication theory. But of course, as is wont to happen, um, sometimes in research, people started to take it too far. And they, right. you know, there was a thinking that, okay, if, you know, changing what you eat changes your mood because it changes how your GI system works. And maybe we could do surgery and remove parts of your colon and that'll actually treat illnesses like schizophrenia. And they call this psychosurgery, mm -hmm. but you know, not, not that surprising surgeries on people with major mental illness in 1918 didn't go well for yes. and people who didn't want the surgery to start with. And so there was, a, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people died. And then at the same time, we were moving into, uh, you know, um, the first psychiatric drugs, chlorpromazine, were starting to be discovered. And we were moving into the whole monoamine therapy of depression or, or mental illness, which is still kind of prevalent uh, today, which kind of talks about the role of neurotransmitters in your brain and their link. And so to, to mental illness. And so people moved away from the whole kind of trying to change your GI system and moved into um, what kind of looks more like modern psychiatry today from a medication perspective. Mm -hmm. for sure. mm -hmm. But now we're kind of back again. And I think because we have better tools. And so there've been some really, really, you know, mostly uh, to date animal work looking at mm -hmm. kind of your gut brain connection. And so, you know, we know that, um, Bacteria in the brain or bacteria in the gut actually produce the same neurotransmitters that are involved in mood regulation in the brain. So there's a, you know, a thought that somehow that may be connected. We know that um, when people get stressed, they produce cortisol. Cortisol is your stress hormone. Um, that's what many of us are feeling on a daily basis these days. But, you know, if you walked out of your house and there's a bear in your driveway, you're going to get a cortisol surge you're supposed to. And it's going to make you either shut your door, lie down, play dead or run away. It kind of gives mm -hmm. you motivates you to do something in the face of stress. But in some people with um, especially depression, cortisol increases are too high or too sustained. And so that's one of the most common biological findings. We know that when there's an increase in cortisol, it impacts gut permeability. So bacteria in your gut that should stay in your gut kind of leak out into your blood system. And that actually causes an inflammatory response. A lot of mental illnesses are linked to inflammation. 
And so mm-hmm. it's maybe kind of these bacteria that shouldn't be out there coming out. We also know that, um, you know, bacteria are really important and we need them to do a lot of things. And one of the things that they do is break down food and they break it down and produce, among other things, um, something called short chain fatty acids and short chain fatty acids like butyrate is an example of one. It's really important for brain health. And so you can think if you don't have enough of the bacteria that are involved in butyrate production and you have a deficiency in that, or you have too many of the bacteria that break down butyrate, maybe that's going to impact how your brain is able to, you know, handle stress and deal with things like inflammation and such. But I think, and then we have this really fascinating connection called the vagus nerve. And so your vagus nerve is a nerve that actually goes directly from your brain to your gut. And people realize that it was important, this direct connection in mental illness, when they would cut that vagus nerve as a procedure called a vagotomy. Mm-hmm. And they would cut mm-hmm. it when they were for, as a older treatment for peptic ulcer disease. If you cut the vagus nerve, there was going to be less acid production in the stomach. And so people with peptic ulcers would get some relief. And that was before we actually found out that ulcers were caused by H. pylori. And again, you know, this is actually a bacteria that causes a physical illness in the body that people thought was completely bizarre when it was first discovered. But now we accept that bacteria cause illnesses in our body. But when you cut the vagus nerve, um, it would treat the ulcers. But people would also start to develop psychiatric illnesses who'd never had them before. So it was something about that direct connection from your GI system to your brain that was actually really important in mental illness and that cutting it increased risk of you getting sick. But of course, Mm -hmm. the most, the coolest stuff is some of the stuff um, coming from animal research. And I think one of the things that again, much like, you know, 20 years ago in my research, I was kind of looking around going, why does no one care that these psychiatric drugs make people put on 75 pounds? Why why Mm -hmm. is anybody else but me upset about this? And I felt like Mm -hmm. I was kind of talking into the void for a little while. Now it's sort of like, why does no, why are more people not completely amazed by some of this animal research? And, you know, Mm -hmm. some of it is fecal transplant work. And so what they've done is they've taken stool from humans, you know, so I, Uh, Humans with different illnesses, anxiety, OCD, depression, even autism, and transplanted this stool into germ-free mice. So mice who don't have their own immune system going on. And what they've been able to show is that if you give these mice stool from somebody who's depressed, these mice start to show depressive-like behaviors. If you transplant stool from a human who has autism into these mice, these mice start to show anxiety or uh, uh, odd social behaviors or unusual Mm -hmm. social behaviors. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you take it from a human who has ADHD, that these mice start to show um, impulse control behaviors. And so for the first time, we've actually kind of shown a vector. You can can cause a creature to experience mental illness symptoms – by exposing them to something. You know, we've never thought about mental illness as being something that you could catch or that you could transfer mm-hmm. from one person mm-hmm. to another. And so to me, that's kind of mind-blowing. And so we've kind of tried to, to build on some of that. And my work predominantly focuses on humans. And so I'm a, a translational researcher. I really want to know how this is going to impact 
people and watch we how we can kind of leverage some of this really compelling animal work to actually try to pro- provide better care to clinical populations. And so we started to look at, you know, does the gut microbiome look different if you have depression as compared to mm-hmm. not have depression? Because that's, that's where you got to start. And of course it, it does. Right. And, you know, what are the pieces that might be involved in that? And then we've moved into, you know, one of the good things about the, you know, there's all of these really fascinating kind of sound bites around your gut microbiome. You know, you have kind of more bacteria in, in and on your body than there are stars in the solar system, kind of. 150 to one is the ratio of bacterial genetic material to human genetic material. So we have mm. to have more bacterial genetic material in us than we have human genetic material. Wow. And so you kind of go, well, who actually is in charge here? And you <laughs> are making the, the differences. And most of the right. bacteria in your body is located in your GI system, which is good because it's in a place that, you can actually access and manipulate. And so if we think mm. that this may be kind of involved in causing some mental illnesses, then the caveat is that we can also try to target this to try to treat mental illnesses. And so mm. people look at probiotics, and certainly there's some work on probiotics. Um, a challenge with probiotics or some of them is that they never actually kind of make it to your GI system. They kind of get eaten up in your stomach and their mm. job is not to colonize. And so they don't actually kind of change long-term your gut composition, your uh, the bacterial composition. And so we wanted to see what would happen if we provided a more robust change. And we kind of said, okay, we're going to kind of clean out the bad, put in the good for ba- basically a simple explanation. And so we started with fecal transplant being the kind of the easiest way to do that right. at the time. And so we we're pretty um, fortunate. There was a granting agency in the U.S. that were actually really interested in funding clinical trials that were probably not going to get uptake anywhere because mm. they were so novel outside the box. Right. They wanted to kind of push forward the kind of not the safe science. They what, wanted to. Was this, was this a private foundation? No, it's called, um, it's a actual neuroscience granting institute. So I guess it is in that it was kind of uh, created by a family. It's called the Stanley Neuroscience Institute. And, okay. uh, and so they fund a lot of unique mental health trials. Um, right. Innovative yeah. and, yeah. Can I, I, I want to stop you there because I have, I have um, a million questions. I, I have to unpack several items here and forgive my ignorance on probably all of them. But <laughs> first, for, first I want to start, I want to start with serotonin. Yes. Okay. And so uh, uh, SSRI, the objective of, or, or the, the thought of why SSRIs work is that it's it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor so that it is encouraging serotonin to stay in your brain instead of being dispersed throughout other parts of your body. Is that accurate summation? Yeah, basically. There's thought to be there's a deficiency um, right. serotonin in your brain and the drugs are designed to increase serotonin. Right. But do they in, are they increasing it by keeping the, the, the serotonin that was going to be then going to other parts of your body 
Because what is that accurate? Yeah, that's you know, oh, okay. of, that's how the reuptake inhibitors uh, work. They kind of block reuptake, yeah. so it hangs around. The yes, finger. absolutely. Yes. Okay. So then, my question is, why is there serotonin in your gut? So there's actually more serotonin receptors in your GI system than there are in your brain. Yes. Is- yes. Why? You know, serotonin does a lot of things. It's not just involved in mood regulation. It has a myriad of different uh, things. It's involved in kind of gut motility, kind of um, all of these neurotransmitters are kind of built and broken down into their components and the components go break a lot of other things. But I think one of the things that it does kind of bring or raise questions about is while serotonin does a lot of things all over the body, we just assume that it's the serotonin in the brain that's actually mm-hmm. important for mood regulation. And maybe that's actually not accurate. Right. And it's serotonin yeah. in other places. Now, that you know, the things the, the brain kind of keeps itself pretty protected as it should. And so then mm-hmm. we have the, the blood-brain barrier, which prevents a lot of things <clears throat> in the rest of your body from accessing, getting into your brain. But certainly there are, uh, you know, uh, communication vectors like the vagus nerve, for example, are ways yes. in which uh, and there, there are um, things that happen in your body can impact your brain functioning. So it may be that, you know, the serotonin, the role of neurotransmitters in your GI system are impacting those areas, which then ultimately impact your brain and that we're actually targeting the wrong site with mm-hmm. with some of our is that is is that a so i i assume that's uh this is still a this is still a hypothesis absolutely you know however it, it's making some sort of logical sense just the other question i had about the vagus nerve itself so it goes from the brain to the the stomach or gut yeah. or gi tract um is it what is it trans? What is going back and forth between the brain and the gut within the vagus nerve? What is going on between the transported? We we don't know. We think that it's basically vagus nerve activity and kind of you know the vagus nerve kind of then acting on the the brain, and so it's more stimulation of the vagus nerve and then having it act within the brain, and so it's things that's you know, stimulate or don't stimulate the vagus that may be important. Mm. And then kind of, so, you know, the vagus being stimulated in your GI system by these different bacteria or uh, these different um, constituents of your GI system. And so it kind of goes up into your brain and is kind of active and causes release of a variety of different things uh, within your brain. So kind of think of it as a highway that connects the two. And it's more about that highway being open. Mm, okay. And then third question is around, so the, the study on mice was a landmark study as it pertains to um, microbiome. And and so the question for me is, why does stool, and if you if you've taken it from an individual with depression or anxiety or autism, why is that the anxiety from your stool able to be transferred? Is it, is, is it because there's your genetic makeup or what is the actual 
Well, I think transferring. That, yeah. So I, what we think we're transferring right now is bacteria. So certain bacteria that we feel like are involved in illness generation. So mm. saying that, you know, if somebody is anxious, they're going to have a different bacterial composition than somebody who is not anxious uh, and bacterial byproducts. And so again, the bacteria produce neurotransmitters. They produce a myriad of kind of, um, we call it a, uh, metabolomic proteins and just output. So there's a variety of um, factors that these bacteria produce. So it's not just the bacteria, it's what they do. And that that is what we're going to be uh, transferring from one to another, just right. like, you know, again, I guess a some sort of simplistic but analogy is like, if you have a cold and you cough on somebody, you're transferring kind of the, right. Right, the, the, the virus that kind of causes right. the, the uh, yeah. uh, you know either the, if you have strep throat it's a bacteria if you if you have influenza it's a virus that that's being transferred and then of course it may be that not and in the germ free mice um, they don't have their own innate system to um, defend against that so they're just going to take whatever they get you know whereas right. in, in right. humans you know. Um, it's not that simple. We have, uh, I see. you uh, you know, you already have your own bacteria. And so if you're, and you would think that if you're, you know, you don't have illness, you have, you know, again, if we're going to accept the whole uh, microbiome um, theory that your bacteria mm -hmm. are, are pretty well, and you're going to defend against those types of invasions per se, or those infections or those transfers, whatever word is, appropriate uh, so when we do fecal transplant so we're trying to confer wellness we have to uh, before we give somebody fecal transplant we sort of try to clean out the system that they have and so they'll get some sort of oh, I see. Uh, and that and that's where kind of the, the whole investigation kind of starts to get complicated some people will say you need to give antibiotics beforehand to really kind of take out what's there and then you transplant it with something that's healthy. Um, others will say that that's not necessary and a, a good a bowel prep or a cleanse is enough. Still others will say that, you know, you don't have to do anything that simply taking something that uh, is going to be a healthy microbiome, as long as you take enough of it, that it's going to engraft and, your body always wants to be at homeostasis. It wants to be well. And so if you give enough of the good stuff, it's going to start to kind of take hold and hopefully move the bad stuff out. And so, you know, that's, we're doing the, yeah. one of the fecal transplant studies we're doing uh, in Calgary right now uh, in one, we're using an antibiotic and in the other, we're not. Oh, you are. Okay. Is that part of the, stuff. is that part of the bipolar study? So in the bipolar study, we also did not use an antibiotic. We used a bowel cleanse. Okay. The bipolar study also gave fecal transplant, which I will say, uh, you know, I can say the, the old fashioned way. So it was via I see. colonoscopy enema. So it kind of went directly to the source. And so there was probably less of a cleanse needed because we, we, uh, introduce the fecal transplant via uh, colonoscopy. Uh, that result results pending seems to, there seems to be something to this, but we're not going to know until we look at that the final results for sure. But even with that, you know, giving everybody colonoscopy is a not really 
a viable option given the number of people who have mental illness. And there is some risk inherent with colonoscopy as well. And so uh, in our next series of studies, we've been able to move to fecal transplant pills. Right. Uh, and so that, you know, that's much easier to give to larger amounts mm-hmm. of people. There's much less risk involved, but it may be that it also is going to require a little bit more in terms of priming of the system because it's still the the pills have to kind of get through your stomach into your I see, yeah. system. And so we know that we're probably going to lose some of it because your stomach's just going to break it down. And so right. in those instances, we, we kind of give um, higher doses uh, in the pills than you need to give via the, the colonoscopy. And we try to create a less hostile GI environment. And so that's why we're looking at it with and without antibiotic. Because again, the simpler we can, well, first and foremost, we want to show that this works. And then we want to show if uh, hopefully it does work, that it works with in the least complicated way possible. Mm. I have one more question. I really want to get into the bipolar study and then also um, the new Canada research chair in psychedelics. I should call it the Parker research chair in psychedelics. So I got to just get this straight in my head and, and I'm, I'm happy to sound stupid walking through this. If anxiety is produced by an external stimuli in the environment and then it becomes part of your microbiome as bacteria, which then becomes a biological construct, it is then transported to mice through stool and then they have that anxiety it it speaks to a really and this has nothing to do necessarily with the study but it's just an interesting direct line between you know everybody always talks about biopsychosocial mm-hmm. and what is mental illness but this really speaks to the you know is, is it nature versus nurture but this is like nature and then uh, it's it's Psycho or social, then by biologically, it becomes a biological illness as a result of the environment. Is that does that make sense to you at all? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And again, you know, it's never going to be completely that simple. And it may be that certain uh, environments predispose to, um, and and I, I guess I should start off by saying there's not going to be ever one right answer one right yeah um, yeah. only one way in which illness uh, develops and illness should be treated and I, I guess what we're trying to figure out is you know is this an explanation for some people and especially right. the people who don't respond to current treatments and are really struggling could this potentially be something that we can add to our understanding and our armamentarium I, I think that you know, everything kind of gets called depression these days. And basically, Mm -hmm. it's a symptomatic diagnosis, sort of like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe 150 years ago, every time somebody showed up with a lung infection, it was called TB, because that's kind of all they had. But now we know because x-rays were invented and and kind of better diagnostics that some people who died with breathing issues had cancer, some had sarcoidosis, some had pneumonia, and but we couldn't tease that apart until the science got a bit better. 
And when and until then, we were just looking at symptoms. And your symptoms were that you couldn't breathe and you got really sick. That must be TB. You know, it's probably that's sort of what we're seeing in mental illness. And, you know, you're, right. you're sad, you have thoughts of, you know, wanting to harm yourself in some way. You're this, you're that. Oh, that must be mean you have depression. There may be 10 different illnesses that are mm-hmm. under that umbrella. And they all have, you know, different underlying causes. And they're going to respond to different types of treatment, talk therapies, um, uh, standardized medications, exercise, and maybe that gut microbiome manipulation is going to work uh, for some people because their symptoms, that's part of what's causing it. And so for that group, absolutely. It may be that there's a biological vector. And then because of abuse or trauma or stress within their um, a certain environment that, uh, you know, their own immune system gets a little weaker and these bacteria are able to take hold and and cause depression and so we have to change up their gut microbiome in order to treat that whereas other people in the same circumstance in the same exposed to the same environment but whom don't have those same vulnerabilities are not going to respond the same way right as last question i've never had a colonoscopy and i don't think i ever want to have one but i assume i will in your study, your is it a <laughs> this is so stupid? Is it a reverse colonoscopy? Because you're not. Yeah, you're no, not, exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. something yeah. something goes in. Now that was in the that was in right. the, the Toronto study, which is done, and so yes, nobody signing up for our research uh, at this point has to have uh, a colonoscopy. But it also goes to show you. <laughs> how desperate people are to get well that individuals who were extraordinarily depressed you know, who had bipolar disorder who were struggling with depression who did not need a colonoscopy volunteered to get one in order to receive this treatment because they felt like this actually made sense to them and the medications didn't work and they were sick and i, I think it goes yeah. to show the unmet need in this group Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not surprised at all that there were people line, uh, lining up to get the, I don't think the colonoscopy at all would have hindered people that were desperately ill to try it. Um, and that's how, that's how difficult mental illness is for people, particularly when it's um, acute and longstanding and if you've tried any number of um, therapeutic options. So, the bipolar study that you're conducting right now. So you received a $1.25 million uh, private donation. Is that accurate for this study in particular? No, so it, was it wasn't a, ma- a private donation. It was from a peer-reviewed uh, funding agency in the U.S. Uh, oh, okay. And, and it wasn't quite that much, but, uh, you know, uh, it was pro- it was probably about three-quarters of a million uh, to do that. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I was just going off of your dean's talk. Ah, I thought yes. you got one book. So you, you you got a lot of money. We got a lot sources. of money. So what, why is okay? Why are they all you United States based granting agencies? Well, that, not all, not all, but yeah. the two you've referenced so far. You know, uh, the um, good question. We can have a we can have a talk about kind of you know funding uh, opportunities within the Canadian system versus the U.S. system and the amount of money given to scientific research. I think that, um, you know, um, we were just, 
we were lucky, a part of it being that uh, one of the things with some of the U.S. funding agencies is that, you know, they like to fund their own first, which, as they should make sense, is coming right. from the U.S. government. And yeah. they'll only, many of them will only fund things in Canada if it's something that they know is not going to be able to to happen within the U.S. in a timely way. Mm. And so if somebody has access to something that's pretty novel or proprietary or kind of can't be done in the U.S., because if they can do it, then what they're going to fund their own to do it. And so, you know, we got lucky in that we were, um, we had opportunity to do something that was pretty neat that nobody in the U.S. Uh, had access to kind of the fecal transplant programs and the, the, the resources that we had. And, um, and since then, uh, we have for sure that the study here at the University of Calgary uh, has been funded by the Garfield Weston Foundation, and okay. um, uh, which is a Canadian funding agency who's again, you know, we've uh, been fortunate to be able to work with who are very interested in moving forward work on the gut microbiome, and you know, we're hoping to, and we're applying to many other places, and of course which also can't be uh, oversold. We've been really fortunate to receive kind of philanthropic donations from individuals within, you know, at, at, I work in Calgary within the, the city of Calgary who are really interested in supporting science. And I think that that's actually one of the cool things about Alberta is that there's still that, that aptitude to kind of, to give yeah, Maybe. especially when it's when it's innovative and there's somebody that yeah, wants no, to provide innovation that, to, no, help, to help patient care. The innovation that uh, extends to all sectors, including science. So that's cool. Yes. Have you applied or received any funding through CIHR? Not yet. And, okay. and uh, fingers crossed, uh, hopefully this year. And again, part of it is because... Um, a we, have, we, a, we haven't needed to, and B, I think kind of the next phase in our research will be more, I think, uh, appropriate to the kind of stuff that CITR likes, which would be right. us testing some of our findings uh, and things that we've discovered on our own. So we're, we're hopeful, but we've certainly received funding from different granting agencies uh, within Canada and then more locally as well. So, so tell me about the bipolar study. Um, how many participants you got in the end? I think you're striving for sixty, and you said you're two weeks out uh, from publishing the findings no, or closing the, talk, close, so closing having, the, the study. having the recruitment done, and then uh, so once oh, I, and then um, so then everybody will be in. Um, uh, the study is three months uh, long, and so the people who kind of you know, are just joining now. We won't have their data until kind of end of December, early January. And soon after that, we'll be able to uh, report uh, on our findings. And so we ended up getting about, at the end of the day, I think we enrolled 45 people. Uh, mm -hmm. um, COVID made clinical research challenging. And so we, just, yeah. we felt like we have enough in the study that we're going to be able to have results that are going to be meaningful and that because mm -hmm. uh, every time there was a lockdown in the hospitals, all the studies had to stop. And so mm -hmm. um, we figured that, you know, we're not going to push our luck. We got 45 people uh, who started the study that that's pretty decent in terms of um, a uh, pilot study. And we're going to, and we don't want to delay any more kind of getting the results out. So we're excited that, we might be able to move that into um, 
that press early in 2022. And so we don't, because it's a blinded study, uh, we don't mm -hmm. know yet, you know, half people that, I guess that's the other piece, um, you know, half the people got active treatment and half the people got placebo. And so we really wanted to kind of ensure that we did, we did it um, properly. Uh, and so it was well designed. And so we're not going to know until everybody's unblinded, kind of how well this worked mm -hmm. or not. We had a look kind of uh, interim just for, um, safety and uh, to make sure that kind of everything was okay in the participants. Certainly the things we saw then were encouraging, but we're not going to know kind of officially kinda, if this is a success um, until January, but we're pretty hopeful. Oh, that, that's awesome. I'm happy, I'll, 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 <laughs> What's I'm that? happy to come back in January. Yeah, yeah, please do. I would love to talk about the findings. And this is one study where, I would not want to be the guy who gets the placebo, you know, it's like you get a sugar pill for one placebo, but then you get, the, you get the the reverse colonoscopy for this one. Well, you, get, even... uh, you get your own stool back. So the placebo is, you get your oh, own oh yeah. 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 That's you get your own stool back. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, 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 I see. That's, that's so wild. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. So that was the placebo in that study. Now the one that's happening and I'm going to give a shameless plug for recruitment. So the one that's happening yep. here in, uh, Calgary right now is for people who have depression, no colonoscopy required. You just have to take some medication. And so it's for people with depression who have not um, responded to current antidepressant treatments. And so mm -hmm. that sounds like you. I say, you know, people can always shoot me an email and I will send them on or the email address. I'm going to spell it out. I'm never going to miss an opportunity to recruit. Do it. Do it. FMT stands for fecal micro microbiota transplant. So FMT MDD, which stands for major depressive disorder. So FMT MDD study at ucalgary.ca. Google fecal transplant and depression. It'll probably come up or if all else fails, shoot me an email and I will send you on. I never mind kind of. Uh, talking about this and kind of getting people excited about uh, research. And for me, the hardest part is when I get emails from individuals, you know, almost on a weekly basis, we'll get an individual from somebody somewhere in the world who's kind of read about this and wants to participate because they're really struggling. And of course, right now, it's still research and we can't recommend anything to people. And we can only take uh, participants whom are able to kind of come in to our facility. And so it's uh, mm -hmm. kind of Alberta based only. We'll, we'll put all that information in the, um, in the email newsletter and, and also any other social media stuff that we, 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 we throw out there too. So we can, we can increase your, um, your plug a little bit. Um, so I got to get back on track here because I just keep on thinking about that reverse colonoscopy. <laughs> you um, won't have to get one. Uh, I promise. <laughs> uh, so this is actually the only clinical trial in North America using fecal transplant to target mood disorders. Uh, and this is, is it, it's the first and only. So the bipolar one was the first and it's the only one for bipolar disorder. The depression one, uh, there is another happening in Australia or had been happening in Australia. I think that they're struggling with COVID and its impact on research mm. more than we are, but we're hoping that perhaps we can, uh, if necessary, or if the opportunity arises, we can combine uh, our results with the university or the Australia study. 
Um, oh, that, but, that would be yeah, good. that would be really cool. But certainly, I'm. Um, we're one of the few groups that has kind of translated some of this clinical science into actually seeing if this can make a difference in people. Oh, that's, that's very, very, very cool. Um, so I want to move on to psychedelics. Uh, and, you know, you guys, you're really doing um, some leading edge work in, in Canada around uh, novel treatments, and which is so, so kudos to you. Um, I'd love to see this is this is going to be bad, but I'm going to do a a shout out for the University of Alberta Department of Psychiatry to get their get their shit together. No pun intended, because I don't you know, I love to see that you guys are doing this kind of work. But I'm a U of A alum. I love the people in the department, but uh, they got they got up their game. So you received a three million dollar donation from Jim Parker to establish the Parker Psychedelic Research Chair, which is the first of its kind in Canada. You do a lot of first of its kinds. I got to start hanging out with you more often. We're fun people. You, you, Laureen told me you're very fun. <laughs> and so talk a little bit about your knowledge of the history of utilizing psychedelics to treat mental illness and how this all came about. Has it been on your radar for some time? Uh, we've, I've had a number of, um, I had Dr. David Nutt on talking about psychedelics and I've had a few uh, founders of private companies, Ronan Levy from Field Trip Health and a few others. So it's, it's an area that, that greatly interests me personally, but now so does fecal transplant. Um, how, talk just, just open floor for, um, for you to share the background on this uh, research chair. Absolutely. And again, you know, we're extraordinarily grateful to you know, the generosity of the community here in Calgary and, and in this case, Mr. Parker for creating uh, this research chair. And, you know, my vision when I came in to take on the, the chair of the Department of Psychiatry was really to just take advantage of the kind of entrepreneurial and innovative spirit that really kind of I think has been the backbone of success in Alberta and to apply that to and this you know in my case mental health research within the department uh and you know we're not I I think you know a a couple things to just set the stage we actually do uh adhere to conventional treatment in science and you know and it's sort of funny because when I talk about my research it seems so unusual and you know we 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 do follow um what you're supposed to do but at the same time we want to strive to do better and for me i am not kind of saying that any of these things are going to work i'm saying that lots of people do them and that we need to do better in terms of treatment offerings and so let's investigate this stuff in a an appropriate scientific way and so at the end of the day if all of these fecal transplant studies don't work, we can kind of say, you know what, stop throwing money at this. It seemed cool. It seemed like there might be a story here, but nope, let's go look at something else so that we don't waste resources on something that doesn't work. Same thing with psychedelics. I think that, you know, it's an area uh, rife with possibility. And I think the reason that people have started to become interested in it, again, is sort of anecdotal uh, stories from individuals who state that you know, this type of um, treatment or exposure to psychedelics has really been helpful for them from uh, a mood perspective. Uh, PTSD is another area in which mm-hmm. there seems to be um, you know, some work on this. And they kind of feel like 
it has helped when other more conventional um, pharmacological treatments and mental illness have not. And so, you know, uh -huh. Mr. Parker is really uh, interested in seeing if there is something to this um, this area. And, you know, if people have read some of the press, kind of has his own connection with some family members who had struggled and really uh -huh. found that this was helpful. And so he was really invested in doing good science, helping people do good science to see if this works and making it available to individuals within Alberta, which, you know, I think that was, um, I could very much get behind. And so we were able to create this research, uh, the research chair we have had. And so what a research chair means is that there's money set aside to pay for this salary at, of a scientist for a number of years and to give them some money to start their science. The understanding being that, you know, they apply for their own funding from grants and things and are successful, but it's in order, uh, it's kind of given them sort of a, a strong head start in order to get some science behind them that they can then leverage to bring in um, other dollars and other opportunities. We have, two applicants uh, for the chair, both of whom mm. are amazing scientists. And again, um, much like uh, myself, Mr. Parker's really interested in translational research. And so mm -hmm. you know, uh, supporting the pre the animal or preclinical research uh, in as much as it helps drive direct science that we can kind of take to see if it's going to make a difference uh, in people. And of course, it's not one or the other. The two things often work in in um, in tandem. And a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, for the fecal transplant shows that it works. We're going back to the animal models to try to figure out why so that we can start mm -hmm. to kind of understand this better. Same thing with the psilocybin research, I think. But, you know, so we're going to be looking at bringing in somebody hopefully within, um, uh, you know, 2022 will have actually hired a person. I think for us, the biggest challenge is finding just kind of narrowing it down to just one because we have such excellent people who are really excited. And for me, it's kind of, you know, when people kind of think about a place to do innovative science and kind of what's cutting edge in mental health research that, you know, for me, uh, uh, UFC and Alberta. I'm I'm kind of more. I try to think big. I don't want it to. You know, we have excellent partnerships with U of A, and we kind of do lots of mm -hmm. stuff together. And I hope that that just continues to grow. Um, that they think of kind of Canada and Alberta as being a place where cool things are happening with respect to kind of research uh, in this area. So you know, we're hoping that we're gonna be again doing clinical trials to look at. You know, psilocybin, um, psilocybin derivatives, and so there's a whole kind of area of research around psilocybin. And you talk to Dr. David Nutt; he is the guy. And I would never presume mm -hmm. to 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 know a smidgen of what he does um, of his knowledge based on psilocybin. I probably have him on poo, but he's definitely got me on psilocybin knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, you definitely have him. Yeah, on it's, a, it's a really it's my claim uh, to fame. My claim to fame. My kids are very proud. Um, you know, there is uh, some people think that um, the hallucinogenic properties of magic mushrooms are actually what is necessary, and that the compound needs to be given in a very um, special, protected environment with trained therapists, and that they undergo sort of a dissociative experience uh, taking the psilocybin and it 
unlocks areas of the brain that they keep repressed. Uh, it, it makes kind of them vulnerable in ways that they weren't. And that can, this type of facilitated journey can be helpful in terms of treating illness. Other people take the complete opposite tact and sort of say, you know, this is just like any other antidepressant. You don't need those pieces. In fact, the hallucinogenic mm -hmm. piece is just kind of, it's a drawback. And what they want to do is to create synthetic compounds uh, where mm -hmm. they augment certain properties of the psilocybin and they remove other uh, properties uh, in the lab. And so you have non-hallucinogenic compounds um, that then work just like traditional antidepressants do, but they're based on kind of a psilocybin chemical structure as opposed to the a Prozac chemical structure, or they use the organic psilocybin, but they use it in small, small doses and they call it microdosing so that you don't actually mm -hmm. get a hallucinogenic um, property. And maybe that, you know, one of those models is the right one. All of those models are right ones for different people. None of those models actually work. But again, well, we we can't, you know, there's, it's great to have kind of anecdotal stories and things in the lay press that stimulate different uh, research um, ideas. But until we actually explore it in a controlled setting, we're not going to be able mm -hmm. to kind of move it forward, certainly in a regulatory fashion. You know, Health Canada doesn't care if your Uncle Jim's cousin, Cindy, got well uh, on a beach in right. Mexico taking psilocybin. They need to have certain types of data. Uh, even mm -hmm. if everybody agrees that this works, they still need from a regulatory perspective. You know, they have a duty to kind of make sure that we mm -hmm. don't uh, unleash wonky things onto Canadians. And so we want to be able to produce the kind of data that's going to help move this along if it works or the kind of data that's going to say, no, you know, let's kind of spend the money elsewhere. Either way, it's valuable and important. Uh, absolutely. And I, I would, I wanted to give a plug to anybody thinking of applying to this research chair position. And I can only imagine that you've attracted interest from around the world. We, we because... have. And so again, we're going to bring great scientists to Canada who are going to stay in Canada and just, uh, you know, expand our collaborations with their home institutions as well. So it's kind of twofold. Oh, totally. And, and uh, you know, Robin Card Harris just recently moved from Imperial College in London and took on a Canada research chair role, I think, at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm going to do some research on this afterwards. This is the first in Canada. Uh, that said, I'm not sure how many re Canada research chair uh, or not Canada research chair research chair positions related to psychedelics there are in the world, and so there's there's two. There's one other. It's at John Hopkins, to the best of our knowledge. Oh, so, it's at John. It's at John Hopkins. So we're, so we're in good uh, company. Yeah, absolutely. John Hopkins is the preeminent um, uh, institution around psychedelics for sure. Um, Roland Griffiths has been doing work in this area for decades. Uh, so maybe I'm, I just lied about Robin Card Harris, but I'm going to research that, fact check it. And then in my intro, I'm going to say I was right and you were wrong. However. I didn't have an opinion. Say, <laughs> no, no, you said two. I'm claiming three. Uh, yeah, there may be, there's certainly scientists, but in terms of funded research. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I, I digress to a place of negativity. <laughs> um, so you guys 
are doing work in psychedelics. You're doing work in fecal transplants. A friend of mine, uh, Frank McMaster, is doing amazing work using repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. He geeks out on that like nobody I've ever seen, and he gets me really excited, especially when he starts. You get him going on Theta Burst, and it's like, holy man. Um, so I just want to say I'm excited after talking to you and the work that you guys are doing at the University of Calgary. I think for anybody that wants to take on one of the most innovative research chair roles in the world, there is no better place than Calgary to come at this time. It's also transitioning from a traditional oil and gas city uh, into a tech hub, which is also interesting. And I know that there's lots of different applicabilities around psychedelics as it pertains to things like virtual reality or, you know, technology augmented um, psychedelic therapy enhancements and things of that nature. So, you know, I would love to see one of the world's preeminent leaders in this area come to Calgary and I think they should. And if they do, they can come on this podcast and talk to uh, one of the most. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's the thing about kind of cool science that it kind of, it attracts other, you know, interested people and you start to find opportunities. So for us with our fecal transplant work and our, just our gut microbiome work, we're working with, um, machine learning scientists to kind of look mm. at, can I have the computers look at this data and kind of see, you know, can, cause this is really complicated kind of data because of the number of bacteria that you have. And so can the computers find patterns in this stuff uh, that humans can't see, or can we work with the computers to, to find things? We're looking at microbiome changes in Frank's patients after they get uh, RTMS. And so we're, oh, wow. we're uh, um, collaborating on projects you know there's a biotherapeutics that can we actually use this and actually start to develop our own drugs made in alberta so there's so many different ways in which this this stuff i mm. just it, yeah private sector spin-offs yeah. from it and all that is it's just unbelievable and you know to your point about science and testing novel solutions i think particularly in mental health care is you know okay talk therapy which is unaffordable for uh, a lot of the population, which is unacceptable, or medications, which primarily you go to a a GP. They don't really know what they're doing. They prescribe you an SSRI. And it's very hard, I think, for people to understand it's going to take like six weeks for it to take effect, if it takes effect at all. And the first six weeks are very uncomfortable. And so in this area, there is no more needed um, capital and science to test novel treatment solutions. And so I don't think it's a waste of money. I think whether or not it works or not, we need to keep on going and trying these types of uh, potential treatment modalities that might have applicability to those that are suffering in our society. So I commend you. And I got to speak up for the GPs. They absolutely are fabulous and they take care of a lot of mental health in the community. It's not their fault that our treatments aren't very good. Uh, 100%. Um, I love my GP and um, I retract that statement. <laughs> okay. We've talked about... Um, We've talked about poop. We've talked about mushrooms. And now I just wanted to ask you about 
where you use are are you optimistic about the future of mental health care and what are some other areas that we haven't discussed if any that you find promising well, I think that um, you know for a long time it really was a bit of a wasteland in terms of certainly um, trying to find the next or the newer compounds and uh, a lot of me too stuff so now i mean we have ketamine we have psilocybin mm-hmm. we kind of have that got microbiome there's people doing really cool uh rtms work i think we're starting to and and i and i i hope that part of this kind of resurgence in kind of looking at new treatments is because the stigma around mental illness is decreasing and so people mm-hmm. are you know for a long time, people didn't talk about the fact that, you know, they had depression or a family uh, loved one had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or OCD. And and so if you can have a uh, an illness that's swept under the rug, there's going to be, there's less focus on treatments for it. But I think now people are coming out to kind of say, like, you know, this is something that impacts me, impacts my family. We need to do better. And so I hope that, um, you know, the focus on treatments is because the stigma is mm-hmm. decreasing. And there's more of an understanding that these are not willpower things. It's not about kind of buckle up and try harder. Right. It's that, you know, these are illnesses for which there are treatments and for which we can make better treatments. And so I'm really optimistic. I, I you know, I like to think that, this focus on innovation uh, reflects um, stigma reduction. Of course, there's we got a lot, a lot further to come, and I certainly don't mm-hmm. think that uh, we could certainly do better. But you know, it's um, for me, it's a hopeful kind of sentiment, and I really hope it does reflect that reduction in stigma. But uh, you know, I think having people um, start to work together my my phd was about uh, cardiovascular disease in individuals with depression and sort of those links and i think we're starting mm. to understand that you know in individuals who have cancer kind of after they have cancer treatment we actually have to also look at depression that can sometimes occur because that actually mm-hmm. has impacts on their immune system and can impact kind of long-term prognosis for their physical health not just their mental health and that we have to work together and that mental health integrates so much into literally the care of everything. And, and so we have to, it's by working together that we're going to do more. And I, I think, um, you know, with COVID after, you know, people talk about it, sort of long COVID and these um, syndromes that occur, we, we've known this for a long time in mental health, that sort of post-viral Kind of brain changes that mm-hmm. can occur and so you know this is actually making people understand that these are all real things and that we can actually you know just like there was a uh, you know we got the covid vaccines came to uh, market you know people thought that it was extraordinarily fast it's because of two things that block kind of fast science that kind of siloed research and kind of that time lag to get funding you know those Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. remove those two barriers with COVID. They kind of threw money at them and right. said, don't apply for a grant, wait a year, get the results, do a little bit, apply more. And they're like, here's the money, do the science. And so that time lag piece was removed. And they kind of said, like, everybody try to work together 
figure can I do things together? And so I, I hope that the fact that that resulted in you know vaccines that kind of hit the market much quicker than many people would have ever thought was possible, we kind of retry that approach with other things. Now we know that you know if we actually fund people to do really cool, innovative work, uh, and we encourage collaboration instead of competition, and it's not kind of who gets there first, but how, how fast can we get there if we all work together? That you know that will um, apply to both mental illness research and this whole connection between mental illness research and research on other areas because they're all very interconnected. Oh well, well said. Um, I don't know if I should end on this, but I told you at the onset off off recording that you've you've brought a whole new meaning to shit for brains and um i I don't know if you'd be offended if if that's the title of the podcast but maybe you and i offline can talk about a few different either technically appropriate names or a little bit humorous names because i think we need a little a little bit of humor even when we're talking about difficult subjects so absolutely and i would say um I'm a blonde psychiatrist, neuroscientist from Newfoundland, working in Alberta. I am unoffendable. <laughs> that's why. That's why. That's why you and Lorraine get on so well. Well, Dr. Valerie Taylor, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to talk to you today, and I look forward to you coming back in January with your bipolar research results. And um, good luck with your candidate search for the the research chair i imagine that's an exciting uh recruitment and you're going to find an exceptional an exceptional person to fill that role keep on doing the great work that you're doing thank you and thank you so much you know the science works better when we kind of get more people involved so thank you for helping kind of with the knowledge translation that's always key thanks have a good friday you too